Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 8. We've uh, been teaching a series on uh, spiritual authority and dominion, and it's uh, it's one of those uh, uh, subjects it's, you can just go forever on because it's, there's always something new to talk about or another angle to, of, uh, to approach the truths in this area. Uh, we're using as one of our text scriptures, golden text, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It tells us after God created the, the heavens and the earth, he made everything that he was going to make in the earth, and then he made man, he put man in the middle of it. But he said in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth." Now notice it says that God made man after his own or in his own image and after his own likeness. We've said many, many times, but I, I want to keep saying it because I want to hammer it home, that uh, the words image and likeness mean an exact duplication of kind. In other words, God made man an exact duplicate of himself. I started off, uh, well, I've always said it this way until recently, even started off this series by saying that God made man an exact as much as possible god made man an exact copy of himself but the bible says all things are possible with god so that means that he didn't make him close to an exact copy he made man an exact copy now that does not mean that man has god's all of god's characteristics and god's creative attributes and power and so forth but it is without dispute that god made man for a purpose specific purpose that's identified in these scriptures And that purpose was for man to have dominion or control or authority over the earth. We could even say it this way. I know a lot of people get upset by uh, hearing it said this way, but it's absolutely true. God made man to be the the God of this earth. And by by the word entitled God, I don't mean creator of the universe. I mean the one that's in control. The Bible now says that Satan is the God of this world. Well, that doesn't mean he has the same creative ability as God, does it? Doesn't mean he has the same power as God. It means he's in control of things here on the earth. Well, man was created to hold that position. God made man to have dominion over the earth. Over the earth. Now, notice in verse twenty-eight, it said that God commanded that man should subdue it. The word "subdue" means to bring under control or subjugate. In other words, God knew that even though He made a perfect world in a perfect system. There would be things that would have the propensity to get out of line or to change from its original condition. Now, notice what God said about it to man. He didn't say, now, if things start going haywire, just call me and I'll fix it. No, he told man to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over the earth. Now, the problem is... The Bible doesn't tell us specifically. There's not a scripture where it says, and God told man to subdue the earth and have dominion over all the earth. And here's how you do it. 
So we have to look at what God did to be the example of what he expected man to follow in the exercise of his authority. Now, ten times in these preceding verses in Genesis chapter 1, ten times it tells us that God said something and it was so. We could say, to summarize these ten things that the Bible identifies that God created or did as a part of the original creation, we could summarize it by saying God saw, God said, and it was so. Now, since God made man an exact duplicate and copy of himself, we would have to assume and conclude that God expected man to exercise authority over the earth in subduing it in the same manner and pattern that God exercised authority over the earth in the creation account. In other words, he expected man to see, to say, and to make it so. Are you with me? Now, people will criticize you for that. For a long time, people have criticized those of us that believe in faith and confession, speaking the word of God into your circumstances. And people will say, well, we can see the sickness is in your body. And here we hear you saying that you're healed by the stripes of Jesus. You're just trying to act like God. Well, yeah. That's exactly what the Bible says to do. The Bible says to be an imitator of God. Specifically, it says to be an imitator of God. Now, think about it with your children. I want my kids, both my son and my daughter, to grow and develop spiritually to such a point that they handle things exactly the way that I would or even do better in their situations than I did in mine. Don't you want that for your kids? Well, how is that going to come about? Well, I'm teaching them to speak the word into their situation. I'm teaching them to see what's going on. Don't deny the facts, but see what's going on. And instead of speaking about the circumstances and talking about how bad things are, to confess what the word says about it and change it. And in that way, to the degree that I can mold them or make them in my own image and after my own likeness, it's going to come about one and only one way, and that is for them to imitate me as I speak the word. Now, we know that Satan came in on the scene and messed things up. He deceived Eve and got Adam to disobey and misuse his authority. But just like God looks at the situation and speaks what he desires to be and tells us to do the same thing, speak the word and change the circumstances, we see that the devil's method of operation is to get you to talk about how bad things are. Not to speak God's word, but instead to speak anything other than God's word. So let's think this through. If speaking God's word into the midst of the circumstances, contradicting circumstances, is imitating and acting like God, then what are these people imitating and acting like when they speak anything contrary to the word when they talk about the circumstances? Aren't they imitating the devil? Well, they don't like to hear that. But it's absolutely the truth. You have a choice who you're going to imitate. You have a choice whose pattern you're going to follow. You can follow the pattern of God where he saw, he said or spoke his word, and it became so. Or you can act like the devil and talk about the circumstances and watch the circumstances get worse. 
Now, over in Matthew chapter 8, we've got an individual that came to Jesus, centurion, that came to Jesus that Jesus marveled at. We'll start reading in verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, that means a Roman soldier, a captain of a hundred. There came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Please notice there's something about this that causes Jesus to be taken back. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. I want you to understand that Jesus identified this man's understanding of authority as great faith. And then he goes on to say, and I think this has something to do with why he's marveling. I say unto you, verse 11, that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about Gentiles coming into the family of God. But the children of the kingdom, speaking of the Jews, shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. Now let's talk about why Jesus is marveling. What is it about this guy that causes Jesus to marvel? I think there's two things that we need to consider. One is this man's understanding of authority that brings him to the place where Jesus recognizes and acknowledges his great faith. But another thing that I see in this is that Jesus is marveling that he found it outside of the people of Israel. The implication from the verses that I'm reading or the way that I'm reading the verses, you tell me if you see it in a different way. But from what I can see in these verses, Jesus seems to indicate to us that he wouldn't be surprised to find this among the children of Israel. But to find it among the Gentiles, that's blowing his mind. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why is it that Jesus found it in the Gentile? this Gentile man, the centurion, and he couldn't find it in Israel. Well, let's identify first what this man understood about authority that caused Jesus to see it as great faith. Could we say that this man, if we're summarizing what what the centurion is identifying that he understands or his understanding of authority, could we say with certainty that Jesus found a man who understood the power of words greater than anybody he'd run into at that point in time. That's what he says. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority. I tell my servants to do this and they do it. I tell these soldiers to come, they come. I tell those soldiers to go and they go. What's he saying? He's saying, I understand that authority is exercised through words. I understand the power of words To make things come to pass. So all I need you to do Jesus. Is speak the word only. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. 
because there's power in your word over sickness and disease. So all I need is for you to say the word. Are we reading anything in to these scriptures to come up with that conclusion? Jesus understood or recognized, I should say, that this man's understanding of authority came down to one basic principle. And that is he understood the power of words. Now, what is it about this situation, knowing what the centurion has exhibited or demonstrated before Jesus, his understanding of the power of words? Why is it that Jesus marvels that he hasn't found it in Israel? See, Jesus is just as stupefied or dumbfounded that it's a a Gentile, a man outside of the covenant of Israel, that has this understanding. So he's surprised at the Gentile, but he's also surprised at the Jews that they don't understand it. Why is that? Well, I want you to turn back with me to the Old Testament to something that, that we need to understand. And that, why don't you look back with me to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. This is the story of where the children of Israel come to the promised land, the edge of the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies in, one, tri- one spy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We won't go through the whole story for the sake of time, but just to summarize what happens, they go in for 40 days to spy out the land. Moses' intent is to find out how we can overtake the land, overcome the people. They come back and they bring the spoils of the land. They bring the fruit. The Bible talks about they bring pomegranates that are much greater and nicer than anything they've seen before, and they want to show it to the people. They bring back one cluster of grapes that they have to carry on a pole between two people. It's nothing like they've ever seen before. And so they didn't want to trust their description of it to the people. They want to show them themselves. So they come back and they say, this land is a land that flows with milk and honey, just like God said it, it, that, it will, that it is. Everything God said about the land being fruitful is true. But we found people in there. Now, folks, if you go back to the history of what God has been speaking to Moses about the promised land, God told him from the beginning the Amalekites were there. And the Amorites were there and the Canaanites were there. That should not have been a surprise to anybody. But they came back and they said the Canaanites are there and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and, and more people than we can count. They're stronger than us and we can't take the land. The Bible says that two of them, Caleb and Joshua, tried to steal the people, calm everybody down and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's on our side. If we stick with him... And with what he told us to do, if we stay in obedience to what he told us to do, he'll deliver us from all these people in the the promised land, just like he delivered us from Pharaoh's army when he drowned them in the Red Sea. But the the 10 of the 12 spies brought back what the Bible calls an evil report. Now, what was this evil report? Did they come back lying? Did they come back telling vulgar things? We think, of lying, we think of cheating and stealing and lying and things like that as being evil. But they brought back a report of doubt. They very simply said, we can't do what God says we can do. We can't have what God says is ours. That's what the Bible identifies as an evil report. Notice they're taking sides, their words, 
by their words, with their words, they're taking sides against what God said. And the Bible calls that evil. Well, if the church world ever wakes up to that, that'll change a lot about us. So, the ten spies, the ones bringing back the evil report, saying that uh, taking sides against God and his word, saying that we can't take the land, they convinced the whole congregation. We don't know how many millions there were, but it's estimated that it was anywhere from five to to, uh, seven million people. Some estimates are higher, but those are the conservative numbers. And they convinced the whole of the congregation, the whole congregation lifted up their voice and began to weep. Caleb and Joshua are still trying to calm everybody down, saying, don't rebel against God. See, they understood what most people don't. They understood that when you take sides against God, you're rebelling against him. When you take sides against his word, when you say you can't have what God says you can have, or you can't do what God says you can do, they recognize that as rebelling against God. So they tried to keep the people from doing it, but the people wouldn't have any part of it. They gave in to the fears. They gave in to the descriptions of the enemy and the strength of their armies and the walls around the cities and whatever else the ten spies described. Now, at this point in time, that brings us to Numbers chapter 14, where God says to the people through Moses, he's speaking to Moses on behalf of the people. And notice it says in verse... uh, Mm, well let's start in verse 27 this is the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron he said how long shall I bear with this evil congregation people that are always taking sides against my word which murmur against me I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me say unto them as truly as I live saith the Lord as you have spoken in my ears so will I do unto you Now, folks, please notice the phrase. There's a specific phrase in this verse that we overlook. We think it's in there just kind of for fluff for God to say, I really mean this. But the phrase, as truly as I live, is the key phrase. Think about how does God live? Well, he lives forever. So it literally means this is an eternal, unchanging law of God. Now, since it's an eternal law of God, it didn't just start that day. It's been in effect the whole time that man has been on the earth. This goes back to man, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, being created to have dominion over the earth, to follow God's pattern, to speak in such a way as to exercise their authority. That's always been the law. It always will be the law of God. It's an unchanging law of God. One translation says it this way. It is the oracle of God. And the oracle of God means an unchanging law. So God says, say unto the people, make sure they know this. As truly as I live, the unchanging eternal law of God still in effect today. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now notice what he didn't say. He did not say, well, in the beginning, man was created to have authority. And his words really counted. But ever since Satan came on the scene and sin began to dominate the world and mankind, Satan is now the one with authority. 
Notice man did not lose his place of authority. See, I used to think that he did. I used to think that in order for Adam to stop being the God of this world or to have dominion over the earth and for Satan to be the God of this world now, that man had to lose his authority. And I'd even look at scriptures like in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus was being tempted of the devil and the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, I can give you this because it's been delivered unto me and I can deliver it to whoever I want to. See, I used to look at that and think that, well, the devil must have authority over the kingdoms of the world. Well, he does. But the question that we should ask ourselves is how does he? See, if you go back and read the Old Testament and read about the kings of Israel, most of them were wicked kings. But every now and then you'd have one in the list that would walk righteously before the Lord. Well, if the devil has authority over all the kingdoms of the earth, then how could there ever be a righteous king? See, the devil does have authority over the earth and the kingdoms of this world, the world system. But it's not because man can't come out from under his authority. It's because man is operating in deception and therefore disobedience. And that is always the pattern for the devil to follow. The same pattern that was in the Garden of Eden. Eve was deceived and it led to disobedience. In other words, Satan deceived them into misusing their authority or using their authority in the wrong manner. How does Satan govern the the kingdoms of this world today? By deceiving man to operate according to the circumstances in his flesh so that he misuses his authority or we could say it uses his authority in the wrong way, a way that's contrary to what God's original intent was. Outside of that, outside of deception, that leads to disobedience, tell me what the devil has authority over. You see the point? So even under the old covenant, God gave man information as to how he could exercise his authority by understanding the power of words. Can you see it? By understanding the power of words. So when Jesus gets over to Matthew chapter 8 and finds the centurion, a man that understands the power of words, I guess up to this point, he's the only one that Jesus has ever come across or at least come across to that point. That point in time, I mean. That has an understanding of the power of words. And Jesus calls that great faith. Now, folks, has the definition of great faith changed from when Jesus was here on the earth to now? It has to be the same, doesn't it? Well, then the definition of great faith would be the understanding of the power of words. The understanding of authority that would make you a master of the principles that govern the kingdom of God would be to understand the power of words. Would it not? Now, back to this story over in Numbers chapter 14. In this story, everybody that was involved got exactly what they said. Everybody. Caleb and Joshua said, we can do it. Forty years later, they did it. They entered into the promised land. The congregation said it would be better for us to die in the wilderness. 
Over the next 40 years, they died in the wilderness. The 10 spies that came back with an evil report and convinced the congregation that they couldn't do it, they said that we can't do it. The promised land is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. If you read a few verses further in Numbers chapter 14, you'll find that they died of the plague before the Lord. Now, most people translate that word plague as pestilence or sickness, but that's really not what the word means. The word means slaughter or stroke. It literally means that they died in God's presence. Not where the people could see it, but apparently these men are standing with Moses and Caleb and Joshua before the Lord, and God just simply takes their breath. They just die on the spot. They said they can't do it. They said the land is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And the land ate them up. Everybody involved got exactly what they said. Why? Because man has been given authority on the earth. And that authority is exercised whether appropriately or misused through the power of words. Now I want you to look back with me also or turn with me over to Numbers. uh, I'm sorry. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. God is giving Moses different laws that concern the social order and such. And this is a law concerning witnesses. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15, you'll recognize a a familiar saying in this verse or we kind of change it around a little bit but you'll you'll recognize it but this is a principle that that god establishes for the operation of the social order now does it make sense that god would give man a law to follow and he would break it himself that would be operating unrighteously would it another way to say this is that if god gives man a law since it comes from god if god is righteous then it has to be a righteous law Well, then if God violates a righteous law, that makes him unrighteous. You see where I'm coming from. So notice the law that God establishes. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. We usually say it this way. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. But this is where this principle comes from. It's a righteous law that God established for mankind. Now the word established is interesting because it literally means to rise up, to accomplish, to make good or something to that or to raise up, something to that effect. There's a lot of different ways that it can be translated, but primarily it's used talking about the accomplishing or the making good of something. And God uses it or the Bible uses it in the Old Testament, more often talking about the covenant than any other thing. God said, for example, to to Noah before the flood, he said, I will establish my covenant with you. After the flood, he said to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you now. He established the covenant with Abraham. He established the covenant with Israel. We're right there in chapter 19. Look back to chapter 18. Here's a verse of scripture you're probably familiar with. Deuteronomy 18 verse 8. Deuteronomy 18 verse 8. 
I think I, back, I, think I made that wrong. I think it's Deuteronomy 8.18. I got the numbers right, though. Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish, accomplish, make good his covenant, that he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. In other words, the Bible is saying the way you make something good is to have two or three witnesses. The way you accomplish something is to have two or three witnesses. With that in mind, notice Isaiah 55 verse 11. Isaiah 55 verse 11 God's talking about his own word. And he says, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish or be established in that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Now, you know, as well as I do, that the Bible says in a number of places that forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. In other words, as far as God is concerned, in the realm in which he has authority. Remember the Bible says the heavens are the Lord. But the earth he's given to the sons of men. In the realm where he has authority. His word is established forever. It's an eternal accomplishment. But notice God says. That the word doesn't work just because he says it. It says my word shall not return unto me void. It's a given and understood fact. That God's word goes out with power from his mouth, from his lips. When God speaks, the word is powerful, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, the Bible says. But the word doesn't work for you just because God spoke it. The word works for you because you speak it. Remember, the eternal law of God is, according as you have spoken in my ear, so will I do unto you. If the law of establishing is in the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established then god's mouth is one who's the other witness you and i are it's when we speak the word it's when we recognize the power of our words because of the authority that god has given unto us that dominion over the earth has never been rescinded the original dominion god gave to man is still in effect Satan is operating in the world and he's corrupted the system that God created. But man, through the power of his own word, still has the opportunity to exercise authority according to God's plan and purpose. Do you understand what I'm saying? So in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. God said, my word shall not return unto me void of power. That means come back to heaven void of power when you speak it. It's you speaking it that activates the power to operate here on the earth. Now you remember over in Matthew chapter 8 where the centurion has acknowledged his understanding of authority by recognizing the power of words. Jesus said unto him, the centurion just needs Jesus to speak the word. He doesn't even have what we have. He's heard enough about Jesus to believe that Jesus is good hearted and willing to heal. But he doesn't have something where he can say to the Lord, here's what you said and here's so, what, here, so here's what I'm trusting in. <clears throat> Instead, he says, if you'll just speak the word concerning my servant's well-being and health, he'll be healed. All he needs to get Jesus to do is to say the word. 
Well, thank God for us, he's already spoken the word. We don't have to wait for him to say anything. The Bible says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. Furthermore, the Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen under the new covenant. So he's already said his part. It's just left up to us to do ours. But the centurion is just looking for Jesus to say the word. Do you remember what we read that Jesus finally said to the man after talking about the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God and many of the Jews missing out? He said to the centurion, go your way and as thou hast believed. Notice he didn't say and as you are believing. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. What does that tell us about the centurion? It tells us that the centurion has already planted his faith with the seed of his mouth. In other words, he's spoken words concerning healing, concerning his servant's well-being. And Jesus says, as you have believed, so be it done unto you. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. Now we've got two examples in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. We've already got two examples of the power of words coming, bringing to pass whatever you say. We've got Numbers chapter 13 and 14 where the children of Israel got exactly what they said. We've got the centurion who got exactly what he said. Now let's look at a third example. Look with me over to Mark chapter 5. Is this making any sense? Mark chapter 5 tells us the story of the woman with the issue of blood. Beginning in verse 25, it says, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue... King James says virtue is literally the word power in the original Greek. Jesus, knowing that power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Verse 34, And he said unto her daughter, Thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now in the centurion we saw that Jesus said great faith was the understanding of the power of words. What do we see about this woman? Well, we see that she began to say something. When she heard of Jesus, Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. So she must have heard that people were being healed by touching Jesus. If she had heard that Jesus was baptizing in water, she wouldn't have reached out to touch him for healing, would she? She has to have heard something about people being healed by making contact with Jesus. So what did she do? Well, Jesus said in one case in Luke chapter 17, talking to his disciples... He said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say unto this sycamine tree, be plucked up by the roots and be cast into the sea. Very specifically, he's saying, if you have faith, you will say. 
If you have faith, you will say. If you have faith, you will say. A lot of times people will say, Pastor Mike, how do I know if I have faith? Well, what are you saying? If you have faith, you'll say. What did she do? She gained faith. We know it was faith because Jesus said in verse 34 that her faith made her whole. Well, if she had faith, how did she get faith? The only thing the Bible tells us is that when she heard of Jesus. So something she heard of Jesus caused her to rise in faith concerning her own healing. And she acts according to what she believes. What she must believe, therefore, is that people are healed by coming into contact with Jesus. So what did she do? She began to say. She began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, let's don't run over this story so quickly that we don't stop and think about her as an individual. Notice what her situation is. She's been sick with this issue of blood for 12 years. That's a long time to have anything, folks. Now, we don't know exactly what the issue of blood was, but you can't bleed for 12 years without being weak. Nobody's giving her blood transfusions. She's not in the hospital or going for a weekly visit for a blood transfusion. So she's losing strength. The doctors have given up on her. She spent everything that she had and the doctors have given up. They couldn't do anything for her. Her situation is not only hopeless, but she's getting worse. She's got what we could call a getting worse image. Are you with me? This is a dire and critical condition. We don't know how close to the point of death she is, but we know that this will eventually result in her death. That's her future, to die of this condition. Whether soon or whether a little bit further out, that's what she's facing. She has absolutely no hope. There's nobody she can go to. Everybody she's been to has given up on her and can't help her. Even when she had money for doctors, they couldn't do anything to help her. Now she doesn't even have any money for doctors if they could help her, which they can't. Please notice she's in a helpless condition and a hopeless condition. But what does she do? She does the same thing Abraham did. Romans chapter 4 said that, that against hope, Literally, without any hope, Abraham believed in hope according to what God said. Another way to say that, a way to summarize that is, Abraham went to the word of God and found some hope. That's what she did. Jesus was the word made flesh. When she heard of Jesus, she's hearing of the word of God made flesh. So what does she do? She begins to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, the fact that she began to say that, what does that tell us about her image? What does that tell us about what she imagined or what she saw herself? She had to see herself changing. She had to see herself reversing the condition. She had to begin to see herself well. That's what words do, folks. They paint pictures in our mind. Remember in the Old Testament... The story of the Tower of Babel. The Bible says that the people came to a certain place, the plain of Shinar. And they said, 
King James says, go to, let us make mortar and brick and build us a tower and make a name for ourselves. Go to is a, is a obscure phrase that means nothing to us. But in the ancient world, it indicates that they began to describe what they wanted to do. Now, folks, let's consider that for a minute. There are some of you here that don't know what kind of car I drive. But if I gave you enough detail about my car without ever having seen me drive it, without ever having witnessed what kind of car I have or anything else, you could go out in the parking lot and find my car if I give you enough specific detail. The same thing's true about yours. You could describe your car well enough so that I could find it in the parking lot without ever having any, ever having seen you drive it or ever having any knowledge about your car other than what you tell me. Words paint pictures. That's why words are powerful. So that's what go to means. Like I said, it's an obscure meaning for us, but when we understand it has relevance. So they began to describe this tower that they wanted to build toward heaven. Now, the point is not that they're trying to reach heaven, literally heaven, where God's throne is. The point is they're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to raise themselves up as gods of the earth. So what does God do? God comes down and says, this is a problem. Because since they are all speaking the same language, since they're all in agreement on the detail of what they want to accomplish, nothing that they've imagined will be withheld from them, the scripture says. Now, folks, these are not full gospel businessmen. These are not Bible reading men. These are devil worshipers. But even devil worshipers, evil and wicked men, which they were, if they get in agreement, if they become united in purpose, because man was given authority on the earth, not just good men, Because man was given authority on the earth, God said, nothing that they've imagined will be withheld from them. In other words, they can accomplish anything they imagine to do. So what does God do? He confounds their language. Literally, the meaning of the word confounding their language, that phrase means he dilutes the power of their words. They no longer can understand each other. What was the purpose for that? To dilute the power of their words. How did that occur? Because now they're not all imagining the same thing because they can't understand when they try to communicate with each other. The pictures are being erased. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the devil's tried to dilute the power of your words. That's one reason he tries to get you to talk about what you see. The circumstances, I mean. He tries to get you to talk about the circumstances and the situation that exists instead of speaking God's word. Remember, God saw, he said, and it was so. That pattern always works. That's the pattern that God intended for man to follow, to see, to say, and to make it so. What God intended for man to say was what man said in the beginning before sin entered the scene. See, in the beginning... Man's tongue was hooked up with his spirit. That changed when the fall of man occurred. That changed. We'll come back to the woman with the issue of blood and finish her. But turn with me over to James chapter 3. Let me show you some things about the tongue. We're still talking about the power of words. We're talking about establishing the word in your own life. 
James chapter 3. Let's pick up the, the, the reading in verse 6. James is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and he said, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity or sin. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth or corrupts the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. James is saying by the Holy Ghost that the human tongue sets on fire the course of hell or brings to pass hell's intentions. But now wait a minute. That's not the way the tongue was intended to be. That's not the way God made the tongue. After God makes man on the sixth day, he looks at everything that he made, including man, including his ability to speak, looked at it and saw that it was very good well what happened to change the tongue from being very good to be full of deadly poison and set on fire by the course of hell what happened folks this is part of satan's deception when satan came to eve and said god knows that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you'll be like gods that's a half truth what he didn't tell them was that they'd lose control of their tongue Now, why is that important? Because the tongue was the means whereby man was to exercise his authority and dominion over the earth. When God talked with Adam in the cool of the day, walked with him in the garden and talked with him in the cool of the day, Adam had to be talking from his spirit. His words were a byproduct of spiritual knowledge and spiritual revelation. He's not talking just out of his mind. Now, your mind can cooperate with your spirit. There's no question about that. But from the time that man fell in the Garden of Eden, man's tongue has been dominated by his thoughts. And those thoughts receive information from the five physical senses and not from the spirit. So now that man has fallen in the Garden of Eden, his tongue is no longer connected to his spirit. It's connected to his flesh and the thoughts that result from the five physical senses that his flesh communicates. That's why James says that in his fallen state, the tongue is a world of iniquity. It sets on fire the course of hell. He goes on and says some other pretty nasty things about the tongue. Verse 7, he says, For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed. Man has tamed every other animal on the face of the earth through his natural ability. But the tongue, verse 8, but the tongue can no man tame with his own natural ability. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, folks, here's one of the things that people say or people question. They say, well, what is it about that baptism of the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues? What good is that? It hooks your tongue back up with your spirit. It's of great importance. Because it's a means of hooking your tongue back up with your spirit. Now let's back up to some of the previous verses. Where Paul, uh, I'm sorry, James starts talking about the tongue. Verse 2, he says, For in many things we offend all. The word offend is the word stumble. If any man offend or stumble not in word... The same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. The word bridle means to control. 
James is saying by the Holy Ghost, he's saying if you can learn to control your tongue because of the power of words, if you can learn to control your tongue, you can control your whole body. If you can learn not to stumble, not to err, not to transgress in your words, now we would understand that to mean speak something contrary to God's word, that's how you become a perfect man or a woman. By speaking the word only. By refusing to speak anything contrary to God's word. Now you know as well as I do. That's impossible for the unsaved man. It's hard enough for us when we're saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And begin to renew our minds to the word. It begins to be a process. But it sure doesn't happen overnight does it? He goes on talking about the tongue and the importance of the tongue. Verse 3, he said, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Well, nobody's got the strength of a horse to make him do what they want him to do in their own power and in their own ability. So what do we do? We put a bit in their mouth. What does a bit in the mouth of a horse do? It puts pressure on the tongue. Now, if you're riding a horse and the horse decides it wants to go a certain way, there was a um, one year my dad bought my brother and I horses for um, Christmas. The problem is he had to keep them so far away they got wild. We rode them once and they were great. And then by the time we got out there, they went wild and didn't want to put a saddle on them. We didn't want to saddle on their backs and that kind of stuff. Well, we got this little horse, this little pony of mine saddled up and I jumped on the back and I'm ready to go. Well, the problem is the horse wanted to scrape me off. So he ran straight for the forest He scraped me off on every tree he could get close to. Well, what happens when your life starts going out of control like that? If you've got a bit in the horse's mouth, you can control his body. You can change directions by putting pressure on the tongue. You can change the direction of your life by putting pressure on your own tongue. Spiritual pressure on your own tongue will change the course of your life. And it comes back to the same principle because of the power of words. The power of your tongue is that which is the exercise of your authority. The Bible says life and death is in the power of the tongue. You choose. He goes on and gives us another example. He talks about these ships, these great ships. Well, they're some big ones, 250,000 ton ships. Behold also the ships which though be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm or rudder, whithersoever the governor or captain listeth, he decides. So what happens? This huge ship is going through the water. The captain decides we need to change course. So what does he do? He sets a new course. What does the new course do? It turns a real small rudder on the back of the ship, small in comparison to the size of the ship. Does the ship turn immediately? No, it keeps plowing through the water, but eventually it starts making a turn. You keep that thing turned long enough, it'll make a 180-degree turn and go back in the opposite direction that it was first headed. That's the example that the Bible uses for the control of your tongue. If you learn to control your tongue, you can control everything about your body. Well, let's make sure we didn't leave any scriptures out here. 
Verse 5, he says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. That phrase, a little fire kindles, what it's saying is the greatest of fires, fires that have burned cities and destroyed homes and people and societies, all started from one small spark. The greatest fire ever known to man started from one single spark. Even so, how great a matter a little fire kindles. That's when he starts talking about even so the tongue is a little member and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, the unregenerated tongue or the tongue of the unrenewed man. Even the tongue of the unrenewed Christian is a world of of iniquity. It's the exercise of authority toward hell. It's the misuse of authority to bring about evil purposes. That's why the devil is so big into into deception. That's his only tool. If he can deceive you into saying the wrong thing, he can get you to misuse your authority. He has none. See, if you think about it, why would the devil ever tell you he's going to take your life? He has the power to do it. Why didn't he just do it? Why warn you? Is he trying to get you on your guard? Or he's trying to make you afraid and take sides against God's word and agree with him to misuse your own authority to bring about the very things that you don't want to take place? Back to Mark chapter 5. We'll close with this. Back to the woman with the issue of blood. When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, she came because she said, her saying created an image in her of being well, of being released from this infirmity, this 12 years of issue of blood. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Now, there's something you need to be aware of when it comes to touching Jesus' clothes. Jesus is operating as a high priest unto God. In this respect, not the high priest of Israel. That was an office that he did not stand in. But he's operating as a priest before God in this respect. He's administering from God to the people and from himself as a representative of the people back to God. And that's what a priest does. Now, if you go to the Old Testament and find how the priest was supposed to be dressed, you remember the Bible tells us that Jesus had a a garment, a cloak that was of great value, so much so that when the time came for him to be crucified, the Roman soldiers saw that it was too nice to split and divide between them, so they, they gambled for it. Folks, if Jesus was a homeless beggar, they wouldn't have gambled for his clothes. If he was what the church world portrays him to be while he was here on the earth. Well, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The Bible tells us Jesus had a home. The Bible tells us Jesus was responsible for the care of his mother and brothers and sisters. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that there were about 150, 120 to 150 people that traveled with Jesus all the time. That he was responsible for their care and feeding them and so forth. He was not some homeless beggar. When the time came... To feed the 5,000, the disciples came to Jesus and said, we don't have anything to eat. 
or to give them to eat. It's been three days. They've been with us in the wilderness. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Their question was very simple. It was a simple one. It made sense. He said, where would we buy enough food for all these people? The question was not, where do we get the money for enough food to feed these people? He's saying there's no Costco around here. We're out in the wilderness. There's nowhere to buy enough food for these people. Which indicates or implies that they had the money if they had the the means or the source of food to buy. Jesus was not some poor guy. How could Jesus be a poor guy here on the earth when he kept the covenant without transgression? He never sinned. He never broke the Old Testament covenant. Isn't the blessing of wealth something that is a byproduct of keeping the covenant? How could he have been poor? He couldn't unless God failed to keep his word. And that's not a possibility. So the Old Testament priests had very specific instructions about how their garments were to be hemmed. There would be a bell and a pomegranate spaced all around the the hem of the garment. Now, this bell and pomegranate served a couple of purposes. The bells served the purpose of making sure that the guy was still alive when he was in the presence of God. If he messed up, he'd fall dead, and they had a rope tied around his ankle. And so if he fell dead, if the bell stopped ringing, they just started dragging him out. Somebody else went in and took his place. That'd be a great job, wouldn't it? The second one in. But more importantly, the pomegranates represented the covenant. And so these bells, which represented life, movement, motion, are bouncing against these pomegranates and making noise. It's an indication that through the keeping of the law, the keeping of the sacrifices and so forth, that God is in, in, uh, in connection with and in partnership with his people. Well, the Bible says in Malachi chapter 4, I think it's verse 2, speaking of Jesus, that when the Son of Righteousness arises, he'll have healing in his wings. That word wings is the, is the Hebrew for the garment, the hem of the garment. So when this woman says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment... It's an indication that she recognizes that he is from God and that the hem of his garment represents the covenant blessing of healing and health. So what does she do? She finds her hope in what she hears of Jesus healing the sick. So she begins to say, we don't know how long she said it. We don't know how long it was between the time that she heard of Jesus and got to a place where she could get to him. But she began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. She fights through the crowd, musters up whatever strength was necessary at great personal risk because this issue of blood is the equivalent of leprosy as far as uncleanness. And she would be required by Jewish law that if she came where a crowd of people were, she would have to cry out unclean, unclean. Then there were two options that the people could undertake. One is they could get out of her way and let her go where she wanted to go. The other is they could start to throw stones at her and chase her away. She violates the traditions of the law because of her faith. She fights through the crowd, reaches out, touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus immediately feels power go out of him. 
Now, isn't it a good thing to know that Jesus had enough power for her? Here's my question. Is she the only sick person in that crowd? If so, then why is everybody reaching out to trying to touch him? When Jesus asked the question, who touched me? The disciples say, everybody's touching you. Everybody's bumping up against you. Everybody's touching you, trying to get something from you. Jesus had the power of God in sufficient measure to help and to heal everybody in that crowd. But there was only one person in the crowd that we have any evidence of that reached out in this thing called faith. Everybody else is doing exactly the same thing she's doing, reaching out and touching him, making contact with him. But she does it in this thing called faith. Jesus identified to the centurion that that great faith was the understanding of the power of words. Her words made the difference in what she got and what everybody else in the crowd didn't get. Now she goes from faith, believing something to occur, to knowing. Jesus turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, Master, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? But he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her. See, faith turns into knowledge when the manifestation occurs. When that which you believe for becomes a physical reality, then faith is no longer necessary. It turns into knowledge. The woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And Jesus said, verse 34, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Jesus didn't even say it was the power of God that went out of me and into you that healed you. Now we know it was, but Jesus commended and recognized her faith, the byproduct of her words, the power of the words that she planted into the earth and into her own heart by saying, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Jesus said, daughter, your faith, the power of your words has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to act upon your word. We recognize, Father, that we have been given authority in the earth, not the devil. The devil has no authority in our life. He's an illegal alien. He's a trespasser. And he's a thief. Satan, we serve notice on you. We found you out. We serve notice on you. That we understand our authority in the earth. We understand our authority and our ability. To partake of everything that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We recognize that the word of God is given unto us. To effect complete and total freedom from all of your works. Sin, sickness, death, poverty, every evil work. Forever, O Lord, the word of God is settled in heaven. And when we speak the word of God out of our mouths, it's established and settled for us. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Therefore, our words return to God his word, and it's never void of power. It returns the word to heaven with the power to accomplish that which it was sent to do. And that which God pleases, which is for his people to be free, which is for his people to experience the will of God in their lives here on the earth. 
just like it is in heaven. So we say we are free in the name of Jesus. We say we are healed in the name of Jesus. We say we have abundance in the name of Jesus. We say we have peace in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, that our words come to pass. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. You need to establish some things in your life. God's established his boundaries. We need to establish ours. Amen? Say it with me. By the authority in the name of Jesus, I am free from all the work of the enemy. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.